3 a.m. Tales of Terror contains explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to 3 a.m. Tales of Terror, where we tell you stories of the paranormal. I'm your host, Jamie. And I'm your co-host, Charlie. And in this episode, we're going to be telling you a story that I have been wanting to do for a very long time because I I just find this place really interesting and it the backstory on it is just really needed because it's, it's a lot happened and um, some of the reasons that, you know, people were committed to this asylum is we're just beyond ridiculous and we'll go over them a little bit so we're going to be doing the trans allegheny lunatic asylum in weston west virginia and i separated these sections into for for us that we're going to the way that we're going to be reading these this story is we're going to be doing pretty much like different eras so that way hopefully it'll be be a little bit easier for y'all to keep up and understand so we're going to do like different eras so like one of us will do like the 19th century the 20th century the 21st century so that way hopefully you guys can like keep up with everything that happened in the order that it happened in so hopefully it'll be a little bit easier for y'all too and us as well (laughs) so first we're going to talk about the pre-asylum era so before it became the trans allegheny lunatic asylum okay you ready Yep, let's get started. (laughs) Okay. Early colonists arriving in North America brought beliefs from the old country, some enlightened, some archaic. Unfortunately, insanity had fallen under the latter. People exhibiting abhorrent behavior were popularly considered to be possessed by demons or witches and on occasion by the devil himself. Most everyone has heard of the notorious Salem Witch Trials of 1692. In recent studies of the historical documents describing the symptoms of the accused, modern psychologists have concluded that a majority of the executed witches were most likely insane. Witch hunting was not isolated to Puritan New England. It was common practice throughout the colonies. Or, you know, witches were just, they had, they weren't witches and they weren't crazy. They probably just had, like, you know, mental illnesses that... Oh no, she has a triangle of moles. <sighs> Please stop. <laughs> Just the we can talk about the Salem witch trials eventually. Yeah. And we can delve into how it bothers me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I That's just, something we could definitely do though, is go visit there. Yeah. But I just I don't believe that they were even considered that they were insane, honestly. Yeah. I think I think everybody else was a little insane. Yeah, it sounds like <laughs> the people accusing were more messed up than the people accused. Yeah, because I, I don't really remember, like, all the reasons and stuff that, you know, people would accuse people of being witches. But, like, I just don't think that it was completely insanity. I don't yeah. think they were people that needed to be put into an asylum necessarily. I think they just needed help that wasn't available in the 1600s. Yeah. So, you know, and I am all for um, medication, <laughs> <laughs> modernized medication. So 
I am not against prescription drugs, just <laughs> as long as they're not being used inappropriately. So, yeah, that is that's my say so on that. So we'll just continue now because <laughs> I went on a rant. Sorry. Throughout the next century in colonial America, the treatment of an insane person was almost in- invariably barbaric. Those without family or friends who took responsibility for them were mostly placed in prisons in the company of common criminals, often chained to walls, unclothed regardless of temperature, and mired in their own filth. Some families did take responsibility, although they were more concerned with hiding their problematic relatives to avoid avoid embarrassment than trying to help them. They stashed them away in attics, secret sheds, and even holes in the ground. It wasn't until the 1770s that facilities began to be constructed specifically to house the insane. But again, these places were designed to extricate the individual from society, not to help him or her reassimilate through curative methods, because insanity was universally regarded as incurable. The 1800s brought much-needed change to the world of the insane. Through the efforts of some enlightened individuals, most prominently Dorothea Dix, the desperate plight of the insane was brought to the attention of the public, and lawmakers were forced to commit funds for more humane care. By mid-century, Thomas Kirkbride's theory of creating a curative environment took hold, and the age of the asylum had arrived. So now we're going to talk more about Dorothea Dix. According to one of her biographers, Dorothea Dix exemplified one of the rare cases in history where a social movement of such proportions can be attributed to the work of a single individual. She was a teacher, a nurse, and a social reformer best known for her indefatigable commitment to improve the treatment of the mentally ill during the 19th century. Born the eldest of three children in Maine in 1802 to an abusive alcoholic father and a mentally unstable mother, she took it upon herself to raise her two infant brothers and consequently had no childhood of her own. Despite little formal education, she was intellectually gifted and driven, opening a private school in Worcester, Massachusetts. <laughs> she, I, I'm trying to tell her how I'm to from say... the South! I'm, I'm sorry. trying to tell her how to say Worcester because I have family from Massachusetts. I have friends who listen to this podcast in Massachusetts and I know she's try- she tried to start saying it as Worcester. And don't I'm like, snitch on me! God, please don't say that. You're going to make so many people mad. <laughs> so, she's trying. From just, Worcester, Massachusetts. She, she's trying so hard. Oh, God. At age 15, where she taught young girls at a time when there were little to no educational opportunities available to females. Five years later, she would open a similar school in Boston. A life-altering event occurred in 1841 when she visited a local jail in Cambridge, Massachusetts. There she observed mentally ill inmates chained naked to stone walls and cells without heat or ventilation. The horror of what she witnessed inspired what was to become a lifelong crusade to improve the treatment of the mentally ill. She managed to gain the attention of the Massachusetts state legislator, which authorized funds to improve the dreadful conditions she exposed to the public. Following her success in Massachusetts, 
She traveled extensively to other U.S. states as well as Europe and Asia, observing and exposing similar barbaric conditions and spurring worldwide improvements for the treatment of the insane. Her efforts were rewarded when the first state hospital for the mentally ill was opened in Trenton, New Jersey in 1848. This was the second asylum built following the plan of Thomas Kirkbride, with whom she worked closely. The strain of it all took its toll on Dorothea, physically and mentally. She suffered several debilitating breakdowns during her lifetime, and eventually admitted herself to the same Trenton Hospital that represented the fruition of her efforts. She was given a private apartment where she spent the remaining six years of her life dying there in 1887. And I wanted to talk about her and bring her up because when I was researching, I just thought that what she did was, you know, it was really valiant. Like, she put such a good effort into trying to get care for the mentally ill, not just the insane, but, Yeah, not you just know, locking them away and forgetting No, she them. wanted to get more humane care. She didn't want, like, you know, just jacked up lobotomies and holding them away from society yeah because really and truly that's not what they need and so she just I really wanted to add information about her because she actually put in a really good effort to try and help yeah, them she's the reason we have well they started making asylums which right. led to like mental health facilities right and she just I really appreciated her efforts and doing what she did although there was a time and we will get to it because we're going to backtrack a little bit before she died and talk about stuff that did happen within the asylum but you know hopefully now I think now they're a little bit better but I wouldn't you mean like psychiatric wards yeah (laughs) all of them but the American ones are good yeah I just pretty bad things about them in the u.s (laughs) yeah so that's dorothea dix she was she was really good person (laughs) so okay so now we're going to talk about the 19th century and how the lunatic asylum what worked and how it became the lunatic asylum in the 19th century so the hospital was authorized by the virginia General Assembly in the early 1850s as the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Following consultations with Thomas Story Kirkbride, then superintendent of the Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane, a building in the Kirkbride plan was designed in the Gothic Revival and Tudor Revival styles by Richard Snowden Andrews, an architect from Baltimore whose other commissions included the Maryland Governor's Residence in Annapolis and the South Wing of the U.S. Treasury Building in Washington. Construction on the site along the West Fork River opposite downtown Weston began in late 1858. Work was initially conducted by prison laborers and skilled stonemasons were later brought in from Germany and Ireland. Construction was interrupted by the outbreak of the American Civil War in 1861, Following its secession from the United States, the government of Virginia demanded the return of the hospital's unused construction funds for its defense. Before this could occur, the 7th Ohio Volunteer Infantry seized the money from a local bank, delivering it to Wheeling. It was put towards the establishment of the reorganized government of Virginia, which sided with the northern states during the war. 
The reorganized government appropriated money to resume construction in 1862. Following the admission of West Virginia as a U.S. state in 1863, the hospital was renamed the West Virginia Hospital for the Insane. The first patients were admitted in October of 1864, but construction continued into 1881. The 200-foot central clock tower was completed in 1871, and separate rooms for black people were completed in 1873. From the beginning, the hospital was largely self-sufficient. They raised their own vegetables, maintained a dairy herd, and operated an ice plant. A nearby coal mine supplied fuel for heat, and there was a reservoir for water. All of the patient's clothing, curtains, and fabrics were made at Weston, as well as fine quality mattresses, I guess the finest you could get at that time. Yeah, in the 1800s. <laughs> yeah. And most of the institutional furniture, thus fulfilling the 19th century ideal that institutions be self-sustaining and that mental patients learn a trade. The land also included a cemetery for the many that passed away or were killed at the asylum over the years. This ultimately reached 666 acres in area. If that's not a bad omen. I know when you told me that, I was like, why can't they just make it like one more or one less? 665 <laughs> is a nice even number. Like, <laughs> it sounds right. I mean, 666 is even. It's just. I consider fives and fives even because it's like a 50-50. I, I know they're not actually even numbers, right, but, but it just feels even. It's just not. It's not. I don't know why they couldn't just be like, okay, no, we you know we're either going to take this acre off or we're going to leave this acre on. I guess it wasn't really like 666 wasn't really like a bad number back then, really. Yeah. So. In the early days, asylums were seen as repositories for more than just the insane. In many cases, people were committed for ridiculous reasons, and many of them were, were, were committed to this asylum for the most ridiculous reasons. And we can get into that a little bit more at the end if you want. So they were committed for ridiculous reasons such as laziness, religious enthusiasm, menopause, superstition, domestic trouble, masturbation, and tuberculosis. Asylums were often the dumping ground for society's unwanted. Interestingly, the asylum offered money to anyone who dropped off a patient, many of whom showed no signs of mental illness when they were first committed. The very first patient was a housewife who had domestic trouble. The first logbook used at, at the hospital lists reasons for the patient admissions and includes causes like grief, congestion of the brain, feebleness of intellect, seduction, and novel reading. God forbid you read a book. <laughs> yep. The 200-foot central clock tower was completed in 1871. The center unit is four stories high with a great cupola and the clock tower. This section was originally designed to house offices and personnel, and at one time even had such features as a large ballroom. 19th century healing tactics were barbaric, some of which included bloodletting and insulin, insulin coma therapy. Seclusion cells and confinement cribs were utilized to control violent patients. 
Unfortunately, there were innocent victims of the asylum due to misdiagnosed conditions and unfortunate situations. Many spent their entire lifetime at the asylum only to end up in an unmarked grave on a lonely hillside. So now we're going into the 20th century. Changes were constantly being made. A woman's auxiliary was built in 1890, and two years later, the 20-acre front lawn was enclosed by a Victorian wrought iron fence. A gas well was drilled on the hospital grounds in 1902. Its name was again changed to Weston State Hospital in 1913. In the early 20th century, overcrowding, a developing attitude that treatment should be directed more to maintenance than to attempt to rehabilitate and a continual lack of funds plagued the hospital for many years. New buildings were filled as soon as they were completed. Over the years, several auxiliary buildings have come and gone. A tuberculosis building was established in 1930. A large three-and-a-half-story brick unit was constructed around 1935. Several fires were set by patients over the years, including a large fire in October 1935, which ravaged the fourth floor of the hospital. Remarkably, no one was killed in the blaze, and the wing was rebuilt for $155,000 by the Works Progress Administration. In 1938, the asylum was called home to 1,661 patients. That year, a survey reported that the hospital housed epileptics, alcoholics, drug addicts, and non-educable mental defectives among its population. In 1949, the hospital had some 1,800 residents. That year, the Charleston Gazette reported that the facility had poor sanitation and insufficient furniture, lighting, and heating in much of the complex. At its peak in the 1950s, the hospital's population reached 2,400 patients, more than 10 times the number it had been built to accommodate. In the rear of the main unit are several brick structures that house service units, such as kitchen and dining facilities, laundry, shops, a forensic building, and storage. Many of these were built during this time. This was likely one of the worst times for patients at the hospital with the overcrowded and understaffed conditions. It, no doubt, could make even the most sane of souls lose their minds. Anyone who complained or acted out was subjected to solitary confinement, chained to the walls of an empty room for months on end. The lack of proper care and access to sanitation led to a large number of deaths at the asylum. While the official count of patients who have died in the asylum is not available, historians have estimated the number to be between 400 and 500. It reminds me a lot of Pavalia Island. Yeah. I mean, I know it's like different, you know, obviously Pavalia was the Black Plague. This is obviously different, but it's the the underfunding, the overcrowding... All of that, like Dying the mistreatment, right? The mistreatment, the sanitation, the not having the money, and and it's not their fault that they didn't have the money. People didn't want to help back then. Yeah. So it's it's really not their fault that they didn't have the money, but they could have done better. You know what I mean? Yeah. I guess if you don't want to help people and work there, don't work there. Right. But. <laughs> So that's why I say it's not their fault that they didn't get the funding, but it just, it reminds me a lot of Pavalia. I wanted to say that. Sorry. 
Weston State Hospital found itself to be the home for the West Virginia Lobotomy Project in the early 1950s. This was an effort by the state of West Virginia and Walter Freeman to use lobotomy to reduce the number of patients in asylums because there was severe overcrowding. And when you are done with this, I want to talk about Walter Freeman for a minute because I don't think that I put any information about him in here, but I know some information about him. Okay. He was crazy. Well, I mean, he wanted to do lobotomies. Yeah, but, okay, so (laughs) I'll just, we can talk about it for a second. So, Walter Freeman, he did more than just lobotomies. Like, he did it for the hospital, yes, but he also did ice pick lobotomies. Yeah. And he, basically, he took his show on the road. He made it a show of lobotomies. And so he took the, he literally took the show on the road and he would go around to hospitals of all kinds and perform these lobotomies and be like, hey, this is how I do a lobotomy. Maybe you can learn from it and do it my way. And he would literally like stick ice picks in people's eyes. And I'm sorry, it's going to get a little graphic, but he would literally stick like ice picks or anything like the lobotomy picks he would stick them in their eyes he did have a couple of patients i do know he did have a couple of patients that actually died and people were like well uh." what he wanted to do was go around and show his technique because what happened was he got so good at it to where he thought that it was the best thing in the world pretty much yeah and so he wanted to go and you know show people how he did it so that way less people he would hope that less people would die he had good intentions i will say that but it lobotomy is about is a lobotomy is a lobotomy like it it doesn't work no so <laughs> unless you want to die or become a vegetable so it he work. just i just walter freeman in my opinion is not a good doctor yeah but then again i don't think lobotomies he just he did it so much at the asylum and he was very he had a good success rate where people would you know not die i can't say for sure if they got better but they didn't die they got better in the case that they didn't talk anymore that's yeah that's what it was it pretty much put them in a catatonic state i did a project on this i made a research paper yeah like mental illness in like mm-hmm. the 50s and stuff so yeah they they just were quiet so they can were considered fixed right so and i think that's what did happen is a lot of them he put them in like catatonic states and that's what there was back in this time i do remember there was an invention of some kind of medicine i can't remember I don't think we have it now, obviously, because all it literally did, and I do know that there are some medications for depression and mental illness or bad anxiety that can really put you on your ass. But, like, back then, the medicine that they came up with after the lobotomies pretty much were making people just catatonic. Literally, like, you wouldn't speak, you wouldn't talk, like, you wouldn't do anything you would just sit in a chair or a bed and that was your day so but yeah no Walter Freeman was I did want to bring that up because I don't think I put much of his we do talk about his ice pick lobotomies but it's just he wasn't he was too much of a show-off yeah and like I said when he did go on the road quote-unquote with his lobotomies he did have a few people die and it just, 
I don't know. I don't I don't like him. I just I learned a lot more about him after I did research on this, so I didn't want to add it in here and make it any longer, but I did want to talk about it cuz I was like, "Ooh, he was crazy. He was yeah. just as crazy. He probably <laughs> needed to be in the asylum more than them." So, give him a lobotomy. Yeah. <laughs> During these many years, a number of medical practices such as ice water bath, seclusion cells, electroshock therapy, and lobotomies were commonly used on patients. At one point, one of the favored procedures that were used extensively was the ice pick, transorbital lobotomy. This crude procedure utilized a one or two pronged device, which was driven through the orbital socket of the eye and into the brain with a sharp blow. The permanent damage caused was thought to relieve some of the patient's more severe symptoms. In 1952, one doctor alone performed 228 such lobotomies during a two-week period in West Virginia. They aptly named it Operation Ice Pick. But the real problem is overcrowding. Inability to handle the large population led to an increase in violence. There were several cases of patients killing other patients. In one instance, two patients hanged one of their fellow patients using a set of bed sheets. When he did not die, the pair cut him down and used a metal bed frame to crush his head. Even the staff were not immune to the violence and several female employees were raped. Many former employees reported being attacked while on duty. One evening, a nurse went missing. Her rotting body was found two months later at the bottom of an unused staircase. In order to deal with some of the more violent, uncontrollable, and severely mentally ill, it is said that many of them were kept in cages. In 1960, a medical center, which included a morgue, was built. In 1985, the Charleston Gazette once again exposed the asylum, reporting that court-appointed inspectors found the asylum to be dirty and unkempt, with many patients left naked and confined to dirty wards with bathrooms smeared with feces. In February 1986, then-Governor Arch Moore announced plans to build a new psychiatric facility elsewhere in the state and convert the Weston Hospital to a prison. Six years later, in 1992, even more bad news rocked the asylum when the Charleston Gazette again decried the horrendous conditions inside the asylum. That same year, a patient named George Edward Bodie died after a fight with another patient. Another patient, Brian Scott B., committed suicide and his badly decomposing body was not found for eight days. The hospital was forcibly closed in 1994 due to changes in treatments of patients and the physical deterioration of the facility. Afterward, the building stood vacant for years. So, the Charleston Gazette was really out to get their asses. (laughs) Like, what is shocking to me is that, like, our families were alive then. Yeah. And it was still that bad? I yeah. really realized, I thought that kind of stopped in, like, the 50s. Yeah. Not into, like, the 80s and 90s. I mean, it was only forcibly closed down in the year that I was born. So they let this go on for years. A long time. And the Charleston Gazette was, I mean, they, they were seriously trying to get them shut down for a very long time, it seems like. Yeah. But it seems like because all that, to me, all it seems like they could get was that it was just dirty and unsanitary and falling apart, pretty much. So they weren't yeah. there to see 
obviously the ice pick lobotomies and the cages. Yeah. People chained to the walls. Yeah. So I, I'm just, I don't, I'm shocked now because I did I'm, not realize I, it went that far. Yeah, I am shocked that one, it stayed open for as long as it did, especially when the Charleston Gazette tried to come after them for th- it, three different times, literally. Like they were like, this place is unsanitary. It needs to be shut down. Like if they did that to a restaurant, the a restaurant, end of story, like, end of story. especially twice, like, it, and the. After the second time, it should have been shut down when they put out the report saying, like, no, you're still unsanitary and your building is still falling apart. Like, they should have been shut down and made to have fixed it. And then it didn't. And then they came after them two more years. And obviously people just didn't give a shit. So, (laughs) I don't know. So, okay. So now we're getting into the 21st century. So our time. Three small museums devoted to military history, toys, and mental health were opened on the first floor of the main hospital building in 2004, but were soon forced to close due to fire code violations. Speaking of fire, the other thing that threw me off, too, was all the patients that set fire. It's like, no wonder. It's like, okay, when the Charleston Gazette came the second time, there had already been a fire, I think. So... If they patients kn- killing each other, uh, yeah. themselves, so killing nurses. Where, why wasn't, instead of just the dirtiness and the unsanitary, why wasn't the deaths of the workers or the fires that were set by patients, why weren't those investigated more? Especially in the 70s At and 80s. Point, maybe do put them in a prison. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, in their defense, it did kind of make them insane. It, I mean, there were a lot of people that went in that weren't crazy to begin with, so they probably were made crazy, and they wanted out, so they set a damn fire. I mean, I would do the yeah. same thing. <laughs> I don't... I don't know. The hospital was auctioned by the West Virginia Department of Health and Human Resources on August 29th of 2007. Joe Jordan, an asbestos demolition contractor from Morganton was the high bidder and paid $1.5 million for the 242,000 square foot building. Bidding had started at 500,000, by the way. So, (laughs) he really wanted it. (laughs) Joe Jordan had also begun maintenance maintenance projects on the former hospital grounds. In October of 2007, a fall fest was held at the Weston State Hospital. Guided historic and paranormal daytime tours were offered, as well as evening ghost hunts and paranormal tours. The central section, directly under the 200-foot-high clock tower, contains a museum and several faithfully restored period rooms from the 1870s to the 1960s. One of the patient wards has been restored, but the remaining 23 are largely untouched. The endless, decayed hallways and vacant patient rooms, including isolation cells with rusted rings once used to chain the most violent, create an extremely eerie atmosphere. The main building of the asylum, known as the Kirkbride, holds several rooms that serve as a museum located on the first floor. There are paintings, poems, and drawings made by patients in the art therapy programs. I would really like to see what those look like. Because, you know how, like, when people, 
people get on like drugs like LSD and ecstasy and stuff like that and you, they become like really good artists I had a friend like that one time <laughs> she she would take I think it was LSD she would take LSD and she had a journal that she would draw in when she did LSD and it was like ridiculous so I would really like to see like what those drawings look like yeah that'd be interesting yeah <laughs> A room dedicated to the different medical treatments and restraints used in the past and artifacts such as a straitjacket and hydrotherapy tub. The tour guides dress in clothes that resemble 19th century nurse outfits, blue dress, white apron, white cap, and white shoes. The shorter historical tour offers visitors to see the first floor of the Kirkbride, while the longer historical tour allows visitors to see all four floors, apartments of the staff, the morgue, and the operating room. Aside from the historical tours, there are also two paranormal tours. Both start as the sun sets, the shorter tour lasting around two to three hours, and the longer tour being overnight with the option of having a private tour. And I looked. They're really not that badly priced. So, and I think I talk about them a little bit more at the very end. So, but I didn't put any pricing in, but I looked, you can go on their website and look and they're really not that badly priced if you can get your butt up there, but, you know. <laughs> so now what you've all been waiting for, the hauntings. The tale of hauntings and unearthly spirits lurking within the building and on the ground started long before it ceased to be a hospital. After a few decades, the reports of hauntings and the sounds of restless souls became commonplace. In fact, some workers were said to have stayed only a few days quitting after hearing inexplicable noises, such as the squeaky wheels of gurneys rolling along a tiled hallway. Thousands were committed to the asylum over the years, and many unfortunately died there. Over 2,000 people are buried in the cemetery. The spirits are numerous and range from Civil War-era ghosts to children to ex-patients and staff. Murderers, rapists, and other violent offenders are said to continue to dwell in the building along with others whose only crime was depression or substance abuse. Sightings include staff and visitors seeing ghostly figures walking through the hallways at night and glimpsing shadowy figures at all hours. One doctor even reported that a spirit followed her home and continues to trouble her to this day. Others have reported seeing a ball of light moving in a hallway and spying apparitions dressed in white. On the first floor of the building, which is called the Civil War Wing, and is the oldest part of the hospital, is said to lurk a former patient by the name of Ruth, though it is unknown the reasons why Ruth apparently hated men and had a practice of throwing things at, at them. Today, her spirit still wanders in the hallways, where people have been pushed up against walls and have heard whistling sounds emanating in the hallways. In Ward 2 of the second floor, a couple of violent events occurred. In one room, a man was stabbed 17 times by another patient. In another room, two patients committed suicide by hanging themselves from curtain rods. Here, shadowing figures have often been seen, and on at least one occasion, an EVP captured someone saying, Get out. The third floor is where two patients tried to hang another patient, and when he didn't die, bludgeoned him to death. The ghost of the murdered man is said to continue to haunt the room in which he was killed. Another ghost by the name of Big Jim is also said to maintain a presence on this floor as well as a nurse called Elizabeth. Other occurrences on this floor include doors that close by themselves, fleeting glimpses of apparitions, shadowy figures, and a number of strange noises that have been caught on EVPs. So these ghosts are not, like, 
they're not afraid like they want you to know that they're there <laughs> yeah i mean after going through all that yeah i probably would too haunting like, people is the least of my worries <laughs> i know <laughs> i mean honestly they're probably just sad more than anything you yeah. know like obviously the violent ones are just angry still the violent ones are probably the ones that had the actual real mental illnesses yeah and weren't treated correctly and so. then obviously getting murdered you're kind of upset right kind of hang around right and then who knows some of them probably only ever knew the hospital as their home well and that's what it said that's yeah. there there were some people some of the patients did spend their entire lives there yeah. i mean you never know people were born with disabilities that people didn't know so they were like oh we don't know what to do here you deal with it so i mean i don't know but they were they they were clearly like, "Hey, motherfucker, yeah, we're here. <laughs> like, come get me, bitch." <laughs> Located on the fourth floor is another well-known spirit, a child named Lily, who sits patiently in a room filled with toys, waiting for someone to play with her. Wearing a white dress and said to be about nine years old, Lily likes to play games with visitors and staff, as toys move around on their own accord and a music box turns on by itself. Legend has it that Lily was a little girl who spent all or most of her short, sad life inside the walls of the asylum. One story says that she was dropped off at the hospital by her parents, while a second tale states that she was born there to a committed mother. She died of pneumonia at the age of nine and was and has never left the only home she has ever known. Stop it. I'm going to cry. Hey, that's so sad. Do you want to go play with her? Not really. <laughs> I mean, she probably is, like, super sweet. She's probably like, what did I do? Yeah. You know? I mean, a nine-year-old who got put up, pretty much put up by adoption, for adoption, like... Or just born there. Or born there. She was probably like, well, what did I do? You know what I mean? And that's just... Who knows? I mean, considering how it sounds, that was just normal for her. I know. She probably didn't even know there was other options. Right. Like, a normal And life. if she wasn't born there... She probably didn't know her real parents. Yeah. Like, I'm presuming they probably dropped her off as an infant. Oh, yeah. So, she probably didn't know. I mean, she obviously didn't know life outside. And it's just like, if nothing was wrong with her. And, you know, she just, she was a normal kid and she just died of pneumonia. She probably was like, what did I do to be here? <laughs> Why are y'all people acting like this? <laughs> oh, my God. Uh Though Lily appears to be pleasant enough, other more sinister spirits seem to linger on the fourth floor, including a black mass-like object and a strange apparition called the Creeper that crawls along the floor. The sounds of something or someone banging on the pipes is often heard here. Another ghost on the fourth floor, who many have seen, is a soldier, who they call Jacob, who is said to stroll the hallways. Numerous unearthly sounds have also been heard, including screams coming from the inside of the electroshock room, banging, mysterious slamming doors, throaty moans, ominous breathing, and hysterical laughter coming from empty rooms. Other experiences include dark shadows, objects moving on their own, disembodied voices and cries, bangs on the walls, breaking glass, among others. The Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum operates today as a historic and ghostly tour hotspot. 
Haunting stories combined with the foreboding look of the structures create the contrast that the asylum is well known for. The asylum itself was created with good intentions, and it was meant to treat people who needed care. Soon it became misused, and the people it was originally meant to care for were abused. After closing its doors for good in 1994, they reopened to educate and tell the stories of the patients who lived their lives behind its walls. If you do choose to visit the asylum, don't be surprised if you feel a strange chill or a touch during your tour. I think I would be okay with seeing literally anything except for the the creeper that crawls along the floor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't think... Everything else, you know, Lily, all the, you know, patient ghosts, everything else, I think I would be okay with. Even the noises, the screams, the moans, the banging, the all of that. As I would, long as I know it's not going to get me. <laughs> yeah, because the creeper would just, mm-mm, I don't know. I'd be like, mm-mm, get me out of here now. <laughs> I've heard a lot about this place, so, like, I'd want to visit it. Right. Do, like, the daytime, like, long tour. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could spend the night there or even be there for a couple hours at night. I don't I don't know. I think I don't know. I'm getting ready to talk about it a little bit. So I don't think they're that bad because I don't think you are ever alone, you know, but it's dark. Mm. So but OK, so let's just get into it. So <laughs> so visiting the asylum, um, it has many tour options you can choose. So they have historic tours. So the historic tours include. The history of the treatment of the insane prior to state-run facilities, as well as people instrumental um, in improving that treatment. The nationwide influence of the, Kirkby- of the Kirkbride theory. The effects of the Civil War that it had on the construction of the oldest parts of the hospital, the Civil War section. The architectural history of the facility. The socioeconomic influence of the facility throughout the history or throughout history, including both World Wars and the Depression era, facts and features, and medical procedures used throughout the years and much more, like lobotomies, insulin shock therapy, hydrotherapy. There's also photography tours that you can use, um, that you can do. Those allow you entry into the interiors of the Kirkbride, the medical center, the geriatric building, and exteriors of all the buildings and the grounds. It's semi-guided tour without historic information. There's also a VIP and a Discover the Asylum tour as well. The ghost tours entail the main building or the medical, forensics, and geriatric buildings. They also offer private ghost tours. When I looked, I think those were about $95. Oh, so that's not bad. No. So, but you can go on their website and find more information. So, and it's literally just trans-alleghenylunaticasylum.com. That's pretty much it, though. I mean... Or like this is like a good classic haunting. Like, yeah, that to me that's what this comes off as. Like it's just if you go and and the reason I say you know ninety five dollars for a private tour, yeah, that seems a little expensive. But from what I'm reading and understanding about the ghost and what you can see, I and think, what you can learn right, and what you can learn about it, I think you're gonna get your money's worth. I would pay ninety five dollars, like right, easy. Right. And they're not all that expensive. Like, there are some that are, like, 40, 50 bucks. I want like, the bougie package. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I think what you have to do is you have to buy the tour that you want, and then I think you pay extra for VIP, or you get, if you just do, like, a VIP package, you get, I, I don't know, 
I'm not. We're not. Go to the website, y'all. Just, yeah, go to the website <laughs> and you'll figure it out if you want to go. My other resources for this story were legendsofamerica.com, snopes.com, Wikipedia, obviously, and usghostadventures.com. So, that's pretty much it. I mean, I, I, I've been wanting to do this story for a while because this place has so much history. You know, this episode might be a little bit longer than our normal episodes because the history on it is just... The history is so interesting. Like, yeah. It just makes you understand why there's ghosts there. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wanted to add it in. And, and a lot of times adding the history in is the reason The reason I add it in. And so much of it is so that you guys can understand why it's haunted. Why did especially, people not leave? Especially this history. It's just like spooky in itself to think about right. that. Like you didn't have to tell me about the ghosts. Just like all the abuse is like yeah. terrifying. Yeah. And it is, it's crazy. So hold on. When, let me, so there was a picture that I had found on reasons why people were um, committed to the asylum. And I can go through and read a few of them. Okay, so like some of the other reasons that people were committed were asthma, laziness, egotism, domestic troubles, greediness. I know we mentioned like masturbation. There was being like overly religious. I mean, it was the ridiculous of reasons, like the most ridiculous of reasons. I'm sorry, I wheeze. (laughs) I know. My gosh. So, (laughs) I mean, like you said, I really didn't even need to know about the ghost. I just, the history enough is, is alone is enough to let me know that, yeah, it's pretty haunted. Yeah. Or I can assume that it's haunted at least. That's pretty much it. So, we hope you enjoy the story, the history, the information, all of it. It's a really cool place. Maybe me and Charlie will go to it one day. I'd definitely like to do that one. Yeah. Like, spend. It's can. definitely a reasonable one to go to. Yeah. And it's only in West Virginia. It's not that yeah. far away from us. So. I've been there. Day trip. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I guess right. we'll see you next time. Thank y'all. Thanks for coming to hang out with us and letting us tell you stories. Don't forget, you can find us on social media, Facebook and Instagram at 3AM Tales of Terror. You can find pictures from each episode there as well as our website, 3, the number 3, 3AM Tales of Terror.com. You can also subscribe with your email at our website for updates as well. If you have any questions or story ideas for us, you can email us at info at 3AM Tales of Terror.com. That's a three and not the word. If you want to support us, you can sign up to become part of our Patreon. There, you will get ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. We hope you'll join us next week. And And we hope hope you were terrified. terrified.